the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. Today, we're bringing you the second episode of our new series called News Bites. It spotlights the journalism of staff and students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. This week's guest is lecturer Jeff Sparrow, who's been working as an opinion writer for the last two decades. His new book, Provocations, brings together his best writing from this period. Over the years, he's written on topics as diverse as geological time and Australia's history of slavery. He's also seen countless media outlets close down, making it harder and harder to work as an opinion writer in Australia. He spoke about his craft with the Yarn's executive producer, Louisa Lim. She started by asking him how he first became interested in opinion writing. Yeah, so I never wanted any kind of journalistic career. I never studied journalism in any way. Um, I spent a long time as a political activist, more or less full time. And insofar as I've had any kind of writing career, it really came out of that. And so the, the first opinion pieces were direct responses to particular issues that I was involved in agitating around. In fact, I think some of the very first ones was I was... Um, arrested and charged with a series of um, crimes. <laughs> I'm not sure this is a really great skill-based not, introduction not, not coming students. out quite the way I wanted. But <laughs> I was involved in some demonstrations um, around education when the, the Labor government was abolishing the free education in Australia. And as a result of that, we were facing politically motivated charges. And I think some of the first pieces I wrote were around that, actually. There was a campaign to get them to drop the charges. And so naturally, I had a direct and material interest in supporting this campaign. And I'd always, you know, I'd always been one of those people who could write a little bit, you know, done writing at school. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try and, you know, get some stuff up. And then I did. And then I thought, well, okay, this will be a useful thing if you're a political person, to try and get, you know, your views into the media. And so that was kind of the impetus. It wasn't really from a kind of media perspective. It was much more from a sort of activist perspective. And what were the charges? Did you get them all dropped? Uh, We did, in fact. In fact, and the police had to apologise because uh, they were clearly sort of politically motivated. And they did. It was actually a really early and important lesson for me about the importance of collective organising to change public opinion because when the charges had first been levelled, they'd seemed very serious and it did actually look like there were going to be very serious consequences. By the end of the prolonged drop the charges campaign, the magistrate ended up castigating the police for bringing the charges in the first place. So how did you change that experience into a career in writing? Well, see, it wasn't really a career. I mean, I guess that, I mean, I guess that's actually quite important. I'm sure a lot of people listening know it's very, very hard, increasingly hard to make a career in journalism in Australia and particularly with things like opinion writing where the pay is very small, the turnaround time is very quick and One of the reasons I persisted was precisely because I wasn't trying to do it as a career. Had it been a career option, it would have been a really bad career option. (laughs) But, you know, if you're motivated by particular sort of ideals or particular perspectives that you're trying to get across, you're perhaps more inclined to persist, even though there aren't really career prospects in it or not very much in the way of career prospects. So let's, I mean, let's talk about your book, Provocations. 
The first piece in it is particularly interesting. It's about how the sugar industry in Queensland basically meant that historically it was a slave state, even though slavery was technically illegal at the time. And it's just this sort of fascinating glance at a hidden portion of Australian history. I mean, why don't you step us through that process, how you decided to write about that, how you did your research, um, how you wrote it? Um, During the uh, Black Lives Matter campaign, some local supporters of Black Lives Matter were pushing to take down some statues of various colonialists across Australia. And the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison responded by saying, in fact, there had not been slavery in Australia. Australia, and there was something of a um, pushback around this, and it made it clear that lots of Australians were very, very uncertain about Australian history and knew very little about it. So, the part of the the initial impetus of writing the story was simply to bring out more about the reality of bonded labour in. Australia and how fundamental it was to the development, particularly of Northern Australia and particularly of Queensland. If you go back and look at the newspapers at the time, it is astonishing how openly they are discussing slavery in Australia and how often people are talking about the prospect of a civil war breaking out in Australia and Queensland becoming separate from the rest of Australia as a slave state. You know, had this movement for what was called northern separation gone ahead, there would have been a explicitly racially based state established in Queensland, something like South Africa or Rhodesia. So it's kind of an amazing story, and it's even more amazing that people don't know it. But when I started writing about it, what is What makes the story even more fascinating is that Australia is simultaneously shaped by slavery, but it's also shaped by anti-slavery. When the first fleet leaves Britain, they leave in the same month as one of the first campaigning groups to abolish slavery in in Britain is being set up. And um, one of the reasons why it's necessary to set up a penal colony in Australia is because of the... American Revolution, which has really turned the British public against slavery. And then there's a whole bunch of slave rebellions, most notably in Haiti, which means that the British establishment are really concerned to move away from plantation slavery because they've realised that it's not economically efficient and they're tremendously worried about slave rebellions. So they explicitly say, when Australia is settled, this is not going to be a slave state. And so Morrison was actually technically right about that. It's just that what that meant in practice was that the theoretical opposition to chattel slavery of the form that persisted in the Caribbean, where one person could legally own another person, paradoxically legitimated other forms of bondage. So the anti-slavery activists in Britain were mostly quite conservative and religious And they were very much focused on the idea of individual responsibility. So one of the reasons they were opposed to slavery is because slaves couldn't take individual responsibility for their action. So they simultaneously thought slavery was bad, but thought incredibly severe punishments on people who sinned were good. 
So you had this paradoxical situation where at the same time as the British authorities are saying, we're against slavery and we won't let Australia become a slave state, they are simultaneously packing people off in chains to make them work through bonded labour as convicts to build this new society. And this tension runs all the way through Australian history. So again and again, they say, we are not going to enslave Indigenous people. And in fact, they don't attempt to set up the kind of chattel slavery they have in the Caribbean. But at the same time, the in practice, the way they, they treat Indigenous people recuperates all manner of different forms of bonded labour. And this becomes really, really important for the sugar industry, where sugar is worked by Pacific Islanders. In theory, they're supposed to have signed contracts to come and work in Australia. In, in practice, they were often kidnapped and worked to death. So, I mean, you have this whole interesting period of history. How do you go about writing that? Yeah, look, I don't think it's worth writing a piece unless you've got something different to say. Otherwise, you know, it's not worth it for the money. Why, why do it? So for me, that's the key thing. Have something interesting to say. Is there something that's not being argued by someone else? And if so, I will try and do it. I mean, how do you apply that? Because you cover a huge range of topics in this book. You know, you've got a story about a turtle called Wilbur, about the return of the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, which is extinct. Uh, Enid Blyton. I mean, how do you find this biomagic in each of these topics, which is so diverse? I mean, the good thing about doing this kind of writing is you can write about anything that interests you. You know, I used to work as an editor, and what they say about editors is you don't know a lot about anything, but you know a little about a lot. And I think it's the same thing with this sort of writing, you know, that to write you know, a thousand words about something, you don't necessarily have to have a great deal of knowledge. You just need to have a kind of curiosity and, you know, a, a willingness to follow train of thoughts. And what's really great about it is it gives you an opportunity to do some of that stuff, you know. So the piece about the turtle was I pitched a feature to The Guardian about climate change and the hook for it was life forms that live a long period of time. So there are turtles that are alive that, you know, met Charles Darwin because they can live for hundreds of years. There are whales that are around 500 or 600 years. There are trees that are 3,000 years old. Well, it's a kind of cool way of raising some of the issues connected with climate change, which is to do with geological time, simultaneously to do with geological time, deep time, but it's also increasingly to do with the fact that we are running out of time. You know, if you're meeting Wilbur the tortoise, I think it was, it gives you a narrative. This point about pitching editors, I mean, how do you go about that? Because I write a lot of opinion pieces too, and I invariably think I have an amazing idea. And if I pitch it, I often find the editors are much more interested in a much more basic and banal idea. Yeah. They, they, they often go, oh, no, that's not interesting. But what about this? And they say something which I think is completely boring and obvious, but I'll often write it anyway. How do you go about deciding which ideas are worth writing about? I mean, it is difficult in Australia, I think, because, you know, there's a relatively small number of outlets compared to other countries. In fact, there's fewer outlets now than when I started. And I think the calibre of opinion writing in Australia is pretty low compared to other countries. And there is a sort of blandness that kind of prevails. However, if you are able to sort of establish your own niche, I was fortunate enough to be offered a contract 
on The Guardian because it's a left-leaning publication, you know, like there was a certain space that I could kind of fill and, you know, but in terms of, you know, like students who are looking to pitch pieces, I mean, establishing relationships with editors is incredibly important and that is something which is to do with practice and perseverance as much as anything else you know making those initial kind of cold calls is horrible once you've actually got sufficient relationship with an editor that they know who you are and that they will at least look at the things you send them it's a, it's a lot easier yeah. And then they know you can deliver on time. I know you can deliver on time, that's always right. Always the key. Um, so you're talking about niche, and I was going to ask you about your political stance. I mean, your niche is basically being a socialist. <laughs> and, I mean, I went to a talk that you gave the other day where you literally said, and I wrote it down. Um, write things <laughs> Prime down. Prime Minister Scott Morrison is someone you wouldn't piss on if he was on fire. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That kind of really explicit political stance, do you think it's good or bad for your career to have one? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, particularly in a country like this, right? I mean, you know, like, so I'm a, I'm a socialist and I'm, you know, unavowed uh, about that. There are lots of other countries where the socialists are a regular feature of the political landscape. I mean, Australia is particularly barren in that respect and the political consensus in this country is so narrow that like I do a lot of work for the pieces that I write and a lot of research and probably more so than people who have more centrist opinions right so irrespective of whether you agree with the stuff that I write or not, there's a fair amount of work that goes into it. But it's tremendously difficult for someone like me to be taken seriously in politics in Australia. Whereas if you're just some sort of buffoonish centrist who just says the same stuff that everyone else says, then you'll be on Q&A, lickety-split, you'll be on the insiders, you know, stroking your beard and opining about the same <laughs> ethicism as everyone else. But I think it goes back to, to what I said at the start, you know. There are other reasons to do this rather than money. You know, the world is in a terrible spot at the moment if you have ideas that you you know think would make a difference then you kind of have an obligation to try and argue for them but I mean you've been doing this for 20 years now and in that time the kind of shorter it seems like everything is more personal how has that changed the way that you write yeah I think that's the case so when I first started as a columnist in the Guardian I mean we were regularly writing opinion pieces of 2,000 plus words which just don't do now I think it's like you know 900 tops and and part of that was just down to the analytics that everyone has now but I think it's partly to do with recognizing the different outlets that allow you to do different things it's a skill set to write a short punchy political piece and that's a good thing to do in and of itself but there are places where you can write longer more in-depth piece you know I, I used to do a lot of stuff for the Sydney Review of Books for instance where they will you know I think it is a 7,000 word piece for them they will give you the space to do that it reaches a different audience and it does different things but there are spaces where you can do that. This is almost like an anti-job talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk about the economics of opinion writing is it possible to survive? Look I mean I, I was freelancing for a year and a half not just I mean yeah not just as an opinion writer, but just as a, you know, a freelance journalist and writer. So I was writing book reviews, I was writing features, I was writing opinion pieces. 
you can do it, but it's very hard. Um, it's very hard in Australia because there just aren't that many outlets and a bunch of the places that I was regularly writing for have ceased to exist. And the difficulty is, of course, that trying to survive by freelancing like that, you have to take almost every year. So you end up writing pieces that you're not particularly interested in and often the, the, the content that you come up with isn't particularly good because you have to do it so quickly. And so in a funny kind of way, you can end up with the worst of both worlds that you write, you don't earn very much money, but you're not producing stuff that's very good. So, so in, that, in that respect, I think in some ways you are better off, which I think most people who write a lot of opinion stuff have other jobs. Are there some examples or an example, apart from saving your own skin, that you can think of where, you know, your opinion writing led to a change in policy or did something? I mean, despite, you know, maybe the impression that I've given, I'm not particularly negative about this. I think, you know, like if, if you make a living in writing in Australia, you have to do a variety of different things and there's no one particular job. So, you know, the whole time I've been, you know, writing opinion pieces, I've been doing a bunch of other writing adjacent things. You'll be doing a certain amount of writing, you'll be doing a certain amount of teaching, those things allow you to make a living. And in terms of making a um, difference, you never really know where the pieces are going to end up. And, you know, like obviously you get a lot, a lot of abuse, you know, on social media. But at the same time, you get people sending you the nicest emails, the most unexpected people saying, you know, that made an argument I've never heard before. If you were starting off now, knowing what you know, how would you do things differently or what would you do? Yeah, although in all seriousness, I think it's worth emphasising there aren't really normal career paths. Like almost everyone you talk to has their own idiosyncratic way that they got into it. So I think the first and the most important thing is deciding it's what you want to do. You know, like if, if you really want to write, you'll find a way to do it. You know, despite the difficulties of the situation, you might not make a lot of money, you might not have a, the most stable job in the world, but if you really care about the written word, if you really want to find ways to reach an audience, you will. And I think, you know, the particular ways that that might manifest could well be quite different in the future to how they are now. You know, it's the various economic crises are disrupting the industry, but there will always be people reading words and if you're someone who cares a lot about them, you'll find a way of making that work. That was opinion writer and lecturer Jeff Sparrow talking to The Yarn's executive producer, Louisa Lim. The Yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Jeff and Louisa. See you next week 